0: Welcome to Wisdom of Wanderlust, the podcast for travelers by travelers. I'm Michael Bennett, co-founder of ExploreX. As a seasoned traveler, coach, and educator, I've dedicated my life to supporting people just like you and becoming the hero of their
1: own story. And I'm Robin Goldblatt, a lifelong globetrotter, avid outdoors woman, and health nut, driven by my relentless curiosity and compassion for our world. Join us as we explore and discuss how to travel better
0: and how to live a better, more fulfilling and more mindful life.
1: Hey you guys, welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Don Mankin. If you haven't already tuned into part one, be sure to check that out. He shares how his background in psychology prepared him for a lifetime of travel. He relives memories from his first travel experiences, and he talks about narrowly escaping from Belfast the night that the troubles started there. Now, in the second half of our conversation, Don will share some of his most memorable travel experiences, lessons learned from a lifetime of travel, and how to travel like a travel writer. So let's continue the conversation. Are you ready to go, Michael?
0: Let's do it. We've got lots of stories you have lots of stories <laughs> like that to tell I, I i guess one question i want to ask you don is ha- have you had what you might consider to be or several um life-changing travel experiences things that, that, that maybe more affected you or impacted you more profoundly than others so i think oh, you yeah. might argue
2: that, that most travel has the potential to be life-changing yeah but but there, but there's some trips i think that uh that really uh, had more of an impact. Um, the uh, my my first trip to Antarctica was definitely was definitely one of them. You know, so at this point now, well, actually, I think before that, let me let me go before that. Um, at some point, I think I was in the uh, actually it was the mid seventies. You know, when I moved from Pennsylvania to to Venice to California, I had a one year visiting appointment at USC. Um, and I was leaving the East Coast, I thought, for good. But And I drove out, and I had a friend who lived in Santa Fe. So I stopped in Santa Fe for a few weeks, uh, unloaded all the stuff that I had piled up in my car, and I took off on an exploration of canyon country, Santa Fe, uh, northern New Mexico, northern Arizona, mm-hmm. southern Utah. And uh, it was on that three-week swing through the Southwest that I did my first uh, backpacking trip solo. Mm. Now, I had done a little bit of backpacking. I think I'd I i think I'd been in the uh, Appalachian Trail a couple times, but not very much. Now, but And this was inconsistent with my emerging self-image because, you know, this emerging self-image of me of being adventuresome and being, you know, at one with nature. And, you know, I was a city boy, you know? you know. I knew how to take the subway in Philadelphia, and I didn't know anything at all about, you know, backpacking. But, you know, I did a little bit. So... It was in the Southwest that I said, okay, now I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, I have a pack, you know, I have a tent. I got, I had all the gear. So I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go backpacking, you know, and the first trip I did was in Zion. Uh, it was from the Valley in Zion up to the, uh, the East rim, one of the rims. No, that's a, you know, that's about a four, 4,500 foot elevation gain with a, in those days, you know, 40, 50 pound pack. And I also packed a lot of water because uh, being a city boy, you know, and, and and I'd read about, you know, in the Southwest, you know, you need water, you know? Sure. And, and so I made sure I had plenty of water. But I, you know, <laughs> I did. I mean, you know, when I got to the top, I said, okay, you know, I, I can't drink all this. So i <laughs> it over my head.
1: You get to have a shower.
2: Uh, yeah, i wash my face. I mean, it was, um, and, um, you know, so that, and that, that was, that was, it was incredible. It's the first time I'd ever been out in an environment like that, on my own, and having worked to get there, and the fact that I could, I could do this, you know, uh, that, that sense of of, uh, of of competence, you know, uh, that was really, and which was, I think, a little bit illusory because I was still was a, you know, was a a tenderfoot, you know, and really had no idea what the hell I was doing. And then a few days later, I was in Bryce, and I did another uh, solo backpacking trip during a, a a trail. It was about a three-day trip that runs uh, below the rim of uh, Bryce Canyon, and again, you know, I was by myself. I think I ran into a couple of people on the trip, but not very many. And the big thing there were were snakes, you know, rattlesnakes, you mm-hmm. know, and I was aware of. You had to be careful about that. So, you know, I'm out there, and you know, I'm getting into it, you know, and I'm starting to feel like relaxed, you know, the the anxiety of this is starting to dissipate, and I'm oh, it's beautiful and I can do this, you know, I'm I'm such a cool guy because I'm, you know, I'm doing this very cool romantic thing. And I'm walking along and I round around the bend in the trail and all of a sudden I hear hissing and rattling. (laughs) It's like, Whoa. And in front of me, just a few feet in front of me was a rattlesnake. And, um, you know, and if he, if he hadn't warned me, I would have stepped on him. I mean, that's, you know, so, you know, I stopped, I I was far enough away that I don't, I don't think I was in any danger but he was on the trail, you know, and I had to get him off the trail. So I threw a couple of rocks at him and he didn't move. And then eventually I just sort of went up on the trail above, above the trail, just sort of climbing around them. And if I, if I slid, if I slid down the, you know, the, uh, the uh, slope, you know, it was landed right on the rattlesnake. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> and then, uh, but you know, so it was that. And then at night, you know, like, uh, you know, I got a tent, but you know, I really want to sleep under the stars, you know, but what if a rattlesnake crawls, you know, but I did, you know, I, I put a tarp down and, you know, slept under the stars and just had this incredible experience. I mean, never done anything like that. Lying, lying there, looking up at the sky, you know, all night long. I don't think I slept, you know, I probably slept a few hours, but most of the time I spent there just sort of like looking up at the stars. So so I think those, those were, and then that continued a uh, tradition, you know, like every year regardless of what I was doing, uh, I would take a break, and I usually head to the southwest, uh, frequently, to, frequently to the Zion backcountry, and then sometimes around Tahoe, up in the uh, Sierras, you know, out, out of Tahoe, you know. And so I would do that. So that was, so those trips, I think, as a as together, just was completely, you know, changed uh, everything uh, for me. Um,
0: Sounds like between between your trip to the UK and and Ireland and and. Scotland and all that, and then now your trip in the Southwest—it was almost a, an unveiling of who you are.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a shaping of of my of my my self image, sure, uh, of who I was, and you know, coming to to say, well, you know, well, you know, listen, you're you're close to that age, you know, and you spent a lot of time with that in your twenties and thirties, and uh, this is now in my thirties, and but it was still still evolving I mean you know I was I uh, wasn't exactly sure what my future was going to be I mean I was sort of an academic nomad bouncing around between different you know universities and not married you know am I ever gonna get married I don't know am I gonna have a family I don't know and uh, so all this was like you know well you know what, what is my life going to be like and who am I who, who am I and what's my, my self? because I um you know to be honest I mean going back to you know growing up I, I grew up frankly, as, as an anxious kid. That's the way I see myself, as not, not very self-confident and anxious about... My, my father was sick when I was growing up, and, you know, I mean, you know, there's other stuff that was going on. And uh, so this, this, you know, in my 30s, in my 20s and 30s, beginning to develop an image of competence and, uh, and joy, you know, and uh, that, that things will work out, and I have some control over my life and all that. And I think the backpacking was a very, very important part of that. And the book, I think my, uh, my work stuff in the backpacking, I think is really what, what sort of shaped, you know, that, uh, you know, that sense of self.
0: I, I What I guess, what I want to ask you is throughout your travels, through all of your stories, you know, what, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the world? What wisdom have you accumulated over, you know, 79 years to be of a lifetime of travel?
2: Uh, well, I think the thing that I learned from, um, from especially the later travel to when I started traveling to Southeast Asia. And this actually became a very important part of my work. Is You know, when I first went to Japan, you know, so you've heard that story in 1971. You know, I didn't like it. You know, I went there for a conference. It was August. It was hot. It was smoggy. And I thought that the Japanese culture was too much too consumer oriented, you know, they were just wrapped up in, you know, uh, all the forerunners of, you know, what we now associate with the Japan, Japan, the Japanese uh, anime and, you know, and other stuff. And I thought it was very superficial and I, I didn't like it at all. But then what happened uh, uh, into my, uh, into, uh, into the nineties as I was getting older and I started traveling in Southeast Asia for business is that I started to develop uh, an appreciation for those other cultures, cultures that I was very judgmental about earlier. And, and you know, I mean, after that trip to Asia, I decided I had no desire, that trip to Japan, I had no desire to, to travel in Asia. It just wasn't my thing. But then going there and uh, at a later age, uh, traveling uh, fairly extensively in Southeast Asia, I developed a, 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 Not a. it's more than appreciation. Appreciation is not quite the, not quite the right word, but for other cultures, and it's, I'd say it's more like an embrace of what other cultures have to offer. And that mindset that, that I developed, and in fact, it was sort of honed by an association with a colleague of mine that I worked with for 15 years, Susan Cohen, who had a background in doing research in teams, and she called it lateral skills, the ability to communicate and relate and empathize across cultural boundaries, so it's more than just, it's more than just communicating, but it's also embracing other cultures for what it is they have to offer, and how uh, you can incorporate what the, the, the knowledge they have, and the the perspectives they have, the food, the music, the culture, and incorporate that into your life and appreciate that, you know, and make that you know part of of your of, of your life, you know, and, and how you relate to the rest of the world. And I think that's what happened in the 1990s in particular. I, mm. I started developing that appreciation. And then it became actually a major concept in the work that Susan and I did uh, when talking about collaboration. We wrote you know, a couple of books on, on collaborating mm. and that lateral skills, that ability to, to empathize. And so it's more than just communicating. It's really being able to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else from another culture that thinks differently than you do. And I think that's really the key, and that's and something that you gain from all yeah, of your travel experiences. Exactly, I, I think if I hadn't been doing that, uh, the international travel, particularly and particularly into Asia, I, I might never have come to that realization, or, or I might have come to that realization in an academic sense, in an abstract academic sense. But I came to that realization in a, um, in, a in a very personal sense. I mean, it become became a, a, a critical dimension of of who I am.
0: So how has that impacted you (laughs) and how you live your life?
2: Well, it's uh, uh, back in the days when we actually used to be able to travel in the city. (laughs) When I used to be able to go out, Michael, you you know Los Angeles. I mean, you know. I do. Things are far flung and traffic is terrible and all that. And the typical West Side attitude is that you're not going to drive anywhere if you don't have to. Um, You know, uh, anything east of Sepulveda is like you, you don't go there. But what I learned is that that's where all the interesting stuff is culturally. Mm-hmm. You know, all the people on the West Side are like us. They're white. They're well-educated, you know. They're liberal, you know. and uh, But, you know, when you travel East, then you start running into uh, Hispanic culture, you know, Thai, uh, Armenian, you know, uh, uh, Chinese, Vietnamese. I mean, you Chinese. know, Los Angeles is a great place for being exposed to all these different cultures. And so... I was the guy that all my friends would come to when they would say, we'd like to, you know, take us to a restaurant in the San Gabriel Valley for food that we've never had anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I got just a place for you, you know? And so I was, you know, like I said, up until, was it 10 months ago, uh, we were very venturesome, you know? Uh, and uh, we, I, I there's a, a group of guys that I, we'd get together with once a month and we would go to the San Gabriel Valley to go have lunch in some place that we read a review about, you know, and, um, and I was the guy, I was the, the guru, you know, of that. And, uh, and so, and I, you know, and, and it also, it's my appreciation of music and, uh, and also I think politically, I mean, this is, you know, when all these crazy conservatives are railing about immigrants, I think, no, no, we need more immigrants. This is what makes life interesting. This is what makes life richer. It, it you know, it, it, uh, it, it adds, you know, a diversity to your life. Um, Adds a potential for creativity, for innovation. Uh, so I think this has been a major, uh, and, and I'm not sure that I would have come to that realization, at least not so uh, personally, uh, if it hadn't been for the travel experiences.
1: Tell us about your story of how you made the transition from psychology and consulting to travel writing.
2: It was, I think, in 2005. I had. Uh, my my most recent book on uh collaboration on international and cross uh, organizational collaboration had been published I think a few months before uh and also a little bit of context too the uh I I had a co-author this is Susan Cohen who I mentioned earlier who uh we worked together for I don't know 10 12 years maybe more uh we were good friends And uh, it was the best collaboration I ever had. Uh, Michael, you know, uh, you're you're second best, but... uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. It it was an incredible collaboration. We just, uh, we liked each other a lot. We really enjoyed getting together and talking about stuff and plotting out our most recent book and, you know, whatever. And she was my partner in all this stuff. And she uh, developed uh, a rather aggressive form of breast cancer uh, while we were uh, working on that last book. So... Uh, once the book was published, she was still alive. You know, she was, she was battling. And so, you know, she wasn't my partner anymore in research. I mean, she was, she had other things that she had to deal with. So, so, okay, that was the context. So I, I had my, this, my, the latest book and I'm having a dinner with a friend of mine, who was actually a former student in 1970. He was a sophomore in I think one of my classes so I was, uh, we're having dinner and I'm giving him a copy of my book. So I give him, I give him the book and he says, Don, do you mind if I give you some uh, career advice? I said, sure. I mean, you know, here's a guy who's making, you know, umpteen, you know, millions of dollars or, you know, however, he's making a lot of money. He's very successful. And, uh, you know, career advice from somebody that's successful. Sure. I said, yeah, sure. He says, stop writing this shit. You know, and that's exactly what he said. So I'm not, I'm not censoring it. And sure. And I said, well, you know, I was sort of taken aback because I thought this was a pretty cool book. And, you know, then he explained. He said, uh, you take great trips. You tell great stories about your trips. And the baby boomers, you know, and this is what he was, this was his area of expertise was, you know, the baby boomers. He said, the baby boomers who are now in their 50s and 60s would love to hear your stories, you know, and, and you can make a lot of money, as a speaker on this, on this, on the speaker circuit talking about adventure and also talking about adventure as a transformational experience. So, you know, it was more than just a travel log. It was actually talking about it as a profound psychological experience. And when he said that, you know, I had that, that experience, the light bulb going off. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but that's exactly what happened. It was, it wasn't like, you know, gradual or questioning or pushing back and saying, you know, what do you mean? and, it was always, oh, yeah, of course, you're right. Uh, except he wasn't right. You know, it, it was not a way to make a lot of money, so. <laughs> you know. uh, but he was right about it uh, being a much more uh, interesting. And, you know, and frankly, with uh, Susan no longer available to me as a, uh, a research partner, I, I didn't see a way forward uh, in d- continuing that work and deriving satisfaction from it. It just it really felt like uh, I had really run my uh, you know, run my string, you know, on that. Mm-hmm. So I was ready. And so uh, that night we went back. I was staying at his place, went back to his house, went to his office. We started noodling a little bit about a, a, a proposal for a, a book. He got me in touch with uh, his agent uh, who got, got me in touch with another agent. Um, and then, you know, that was it. That's how it came. And then just to add another little a bit to it, so, in working with the agent, she said that you know there isn't much of an, a uh, a market for travel memoirs unless you're famous, like uh, uh, Andrew McCarthy. So, you need to make it more practical. Well, I didn't know anything practical. I mean, uh, you know, I had good stories and I did great trips, but I didn't know much practical. So then, I she said, "Well, can you find a uh, a co-author?" Uh, so I got on the uh, the internet and I started looking for possible collaborators, and I ended up. Talking to the president of uh, Lindblad. Anyway, I, I talked to a couple of people, and they said it sounded like an interesting topic, uh, and they would love to to uh, to work with me. But they, you know, they didn't have time. You know, they were, you know, they had a company to run. And then I found uh, Shannon Stowell, who was the president of the Adventure Travel Trade Association. Mm. And uh, so I sent him an email. I said, "Are you interested in in working with me on this?" And he replied, "Yeah, sounds sounds interesting." Why don't you come to Seattle for the first meeting of the Eventual Travel Trade Association in 2000, I think it was 2005 or 2006. I forget oh, yeah. exactly what it was And We'll talk about it. And that's how it all started. And that turned into writing the hula hula. Now, the, the title, which is confusing. I mean, I had a friend of mine say, oh, yeah, that book that you wrote about Hawaii. Which is clear to me, he never read the book. Right? I gave him a copy, but he never read it. The Hula Hula is a, a river in northern Alaska that starts in the Brooks Range and runs uh, to the Arctic Ocean. And it was named by uh, two whalers who got stuck in the two Hawaiian whalers who were on a whaling ship that got stuck in the ice at the mouth of the river in the 19th century. And so I guess they were homesick, so they they named the river the Hula Hula just to remind them of home. So that's how it got that name. Uh, and that was that was also a trip that was very transformational for me. It was a very very impactful trip. Uh, the, you know, it was a float trip. It was an eleven day float trip from the Brooks Range to the uh, to an island uh, off the coast uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Empty. No, there's nobody there. I mean, this is uh, it's through the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. There's nothing but. Grizzly bears and caribou and wolves and you know all kinds of muskox and musk oxen. I mean, it was just a just a mind blowing trip with the scenery that that Arctic you know scenery midnight sun you know scenery. What what is
0: your? I have some some questions I want to ask you about your approach to travel now that you're a travel writer. But before I do that, I only ask you this: What is if people were to read one piece of your writing, what would that be? What 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 are you most proud of?
2: Oh wow, that's a tough one. You
0: can cheat and give me two or three.
2: Well, I think my I think my funniest actually was about my trip to Montenegro, and that was the first time I won a, a gold award from the North American Travel Journal Association. But it wasn't because of anything transformative. It's just that our guide was an incredible character. And I made the the uh, story about this this guy, you know, who would say great things like uh, "Love is not potatoes, my friend." Do you have any idea what, what he meant what, by that? What does this mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did he mean by that? Do you have any idea? <laughs> well, yeah. Love, love is not to be taken for granted. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was actually quite profound when you think about it. Sure, it's, sure, sure. <laughs> just sounded ridiculous. Um, let me think. What else? <laughs> well, the um, I think the, uh, the 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 title chapter from uh, from this book, I think, was. Uh, Writing the hula, yeah. uh, the uh, the chapter that I have on Antarctica, my first trip to Antarctica, which I think was uh, was pretty pretty formative. Uh, you know, actually, the uh, chapter uh, Ethiopia, mm. which mm. I think uh, because they, that was a that 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 required a deep dive. Some 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 places that I visit don't require a deep a deep dive. It's all out there on the surface, or the, the the theme you know comes with the with the place like you know Northern Ireland. I mean. You don't have to dive deep to find what's the theme in Northern Ireland, but in Ethiopia, the, you know, so the, the theme that takes you from a description and an experience of an event of events and 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 places. You know, we did this, we saw this, we did this, we saw that, da 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 da. And you know, it's it can be a, it, it's a journal. You know, they want travelogue, right? Yeah, it's a travelogue, right? But. Uh, But in order to go deeper and to look for some more profound meaning that might have a a greater impact uh, on you and on your reader, I think uh, Ethiopia sort of did it for me because uh, Ethiopia is really the crossroads of the world. Because where it's located, if you look on a map where it's located, it really is literally physically the crossroads. It's where European travelers would pass through Ethiopia to get to Asia or to Africa, where uh, Arabs and Berbers would come from, you know, the Middle East, you know, into Ethiopia. Africans, you know, would would travel to get to uh, the Arab countries or to Europe. Mm -hmm. So it really was the the crossroads of the world. And you can see it in the faces of the people. And then there is this other dimension for me, particularly, this is very personal to me, is that uh, the Ethiopia was strongly influenced by Judaism. And wherever you go in Ethiopia, you see over doors, you know lintels, I guess they call them. You see stars of David, you know, all over. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, there's the story about the Ethiopian Jews, the Falashas, that were rescued uh, by Israel and, and uh, transported to Israel. But there is a the uh, religious roots go back very far to very to ancient uh, Christian and 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 Hebrew uh, practice. And uh, so uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has rituals that are very evocative because they're, 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 both, they're both familiar and strange at the same time. So, that so you know, I was trying to capture that in, in, in the article I wrote, and I think I actually, actually got it, you know, about this combination of strange and familiar. Um, so the familiar that sort of draws you in and say, I've heard that before. This sounds, you know. And, but, then, but there's something really different about it. And I think that uh, in terms of, um, for me, uh, it felt very personal. Uh, and, and trying to, to and, and see, when I was there, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's going to be my theme? What's the story here? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it really, it, it didn't hit me right away. And it was only, actually, <laughs> it happened when we were visiting some, uh, some temple, uh, some church, Ethiopian church. And there were two uh, young boys sitting out uh, in the yard underneath a tree and they were chanting. And I said, that chanting sounds familiar to me, you know, and it sounded to me, reminded me of like two Jewish kids practicing their bar mitzvah, (laughs) Mm -hmm. except they were Ethiopian. And, you know, it was completely different. Um, Where can somebody find your writings? uh, Well, the best place is to go on my website and to click on articles. And all my articles, there's links to all my articles. They can also go to my blog. Because I use my blog as sort of like a, a dumping ground for all of my photos and my initial thoughts. So it's not as well formed. It's the, the, the blog is more journal-like. You know, this is what we did. You know, Sometimes I, I get over into deeper meaning. And I get a lot of photos, you know, on the blog. My articles, unfortunately, there's uh, usually only one, two, or maybe three photos at most – and I don't get to pick them. My the, the editors, you know, pick the photos, so they don't always pick the photos that I would like them to use. So between the uh, the blog and the articles, they can, uh, you know, they get a very good sense of of the places that I've been. And that's adventuretransformations.com? Exactly, cool. correct.
0: So so I want to go back to your your sort of approach to travel as a travel writer, because I think what what I want to learn, and I think what a lot of our listeners might want to hear about is what do you do differently now, or how do you approach a trip differently now than maybe you have in the past, You know, sort of through the mindset and through the eyes of a travel writer? Is there anything that you do differently before the trip to sort of either adopt a particular mindset or prepare for the trip differently than you, than you would have before you began travel writing?
2: Well, I'm not sure about that, uh, because I, I think that I've always approached my trips in fairly much the same way, except for taking notes, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But I think there's something that I do that I think most travelers don't do. So I think that's what's different. When I was a psychologist, one of my early topics that I was interested in before I became really immersed in industrial and organizational psychology, uh, I was um, studying the psychology of daydreaming. So I was really into daydreaming and how we use daydreaming and how daydreaming can be a tool for thinking about the future, for planning our lives, you know, for creativity, you know, and stuff like that. So I was really into that. And, and, and I've always been a daydreamer anyway. So going back before that when I was a kid, with the sci-fi stories or just fantasizing about being somewhere else because I wasn't happy where I was. Right. And sometimes as, a, as a, a, a means for getting through a boring job. In fact, I, I had one job that was so boring that I actually wrote a whole novel in my head over the space of about a month. <clears throat> I never wrote it down. So <laughs> I, so daydreaming has always um, sort of interested me. And so I approach every trip. So daydreaming is a tool that I use for determining whether it's a trip that I really want to do. So I mean, I try to, you know, so you have to read a lot to get some sense for what the trip will involve. And then you think about it, you know, daydreams. So, yeah, here I am. I'm, you know, walking here, you know, I'm getting ready to go out for dinner. You know, I'm hanging around in the hotel, you know, so. I use the daydreaming to try and get a sense for what the trip might actually be like. I said, like, uh Oh wait, this trip means I have to spend more time with people than I'd like. Or, okay. Maybe it's not such a good idea. You know? Mm-hmm. So I, I use it for, to, to get a sense of whether it's something I want to do, but then I also use it to help uh, plan my, my packing, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of clothes I'm going to need, what kind of gear I'm going to need. So I start to imagine that I'm walking through the city. What kind of clothes do I need? You know, what kind of shoes, what, you know, is this like a formal place where I need to be a little more dressed like Paris? Is this a place like in Southeast Asia where um, you can't enter temples and shorts, you know, you know, stuff like that. So you, you fantasize about what you'll be doing. And then I use that as a mechanism for, for putting together, you know, my packing list. So in terms of preparation, then, uh, that also gives me an idea about whether I need to do some training. Sure. You know, oh, I'm going to be on a bike for six hours a day, you know, uh, pedaling for 33 you know miles every day. You know, I better do some training for that or I'm going to be doing a lot of hiking. So in terms of preparing for the trip, uh, packing gear and also training and then anything else that I, I might have to take care of, you know, so daydreaming is a very uh, active tool that I use to prepare for those trips. Has
0: your accuracy in your daydreaming gotten better as you've traveled more? I mean, like put differently, like does the experience match what you thought it would be more often than not?
2: Yeah. I'm, I, uh, I, I, I haven't, I've made very few mistakes. I think there's been very few trips that I've been on that I regretted being on. And I think not since I was travel writing, actually, I think uh, for all the, all the travel writing, all the trips I've taken as a travel writer, Uh, Have all panned out in in some way or another. Sometimes, maybe not as good as I thought, but still, you know, good enough. There's only one trip that comes to mind that really ended up uh, being a a bit of a disaster, and that, but that was before I was a travel writer. That was a kayaking trip in Belize where we got marooned on an island for four days. So,
0: do you? What do you do if anything to prepare for the culture, the language, if you're going to a place that's new? to you do you do you read books about you know from local authors do you watch television programs about the destination or shows or do you just show up in embrace?
2: uh that's i'm terrible I'm, I'm i'm sort of lazy that way and 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 also it's, it's like i'm not sure i want to know too much because i want to be surprised so I, you know i want to go in with a, a little bit of a blank mind not completely uh and and i can do that because when i travel with my wife she's just the opposite you know, so my wife will do all of the reading, you know, she'll read literature, she'll read Laotian crime stories, you know. And so I have her to rely on to fill me in for, for what I'm missing. If I'm if I'm on my own, then it's a bit of a, it, it could be a handicap. And, and I always tell myself I should, I really should read more. I should be better prepared. But I, I don't think, I think I'm very rarely as prepared as I should be. It's, um, it's
0: funny you say that. There's, there's I think almost every many travel industry experts and writers you know you ask them about their preparation and it, it, it's constantly mm-hmm. well, I should do more reading I should do more preparation I should do this but but ultimately they don't and I do wonder you know if that doesn't in a way contribute to the quality of the experience when they're there, right? Because you're not looking for specific things, right? You're not, That's you're right. not, you're, you're really maybe more open minded than you would be versus saying, oh, I'm expecting to experience A, B, and C.
2: Exactly. And, and also, I think it enables me to come to my own understandings of where I am. I think if I read too much, I'd go into a place and so, oh, yeah, right, this is what they talked about, you know? And whereas uh, if I don't read too much, I discover it. You know, and it becomes becomes more a part of me, and and maybe more dimension to it, and maybe richer, you know, as a result. So, I think I think you know you you need to do some prep. I mean, really, it's a mistake not to do uh, prep. But I think it, uh, for me anyway, it'd be a mistake to be preparing too much, overly prepared. Yeah, you know, serendipity is a very important quality in life and in travel. You have to mm-hmm. be. You have to be. You have to. Allow yourself to be surprised, you know, and sometimes sometimes it means being unprepared, yeah. and sometimes yeah. that get you in that can get you in a pickle, but you know yeah
0: yeah I, I do I do think you know from from what I've learned and you know is that as you're saying there's a there's a delicate balance of being informed enough to not put yourself or others at at risk or in danger or anything like that, but also being spontaneous enough and open right. enough right that right. you are not myopic right. to some of the experiences and things that you're yeah. encountering. So, yeah. so I think I know the answer to this question, but then like, do you, as a writer, do you go into a story looking for a particular angle or with a particular agenda, or do you let it evolve and emerge as you experience
2: your travels? I usually let it emerge when I'm during the trip, but when I, once I start writing, I, I have to have that angle. If I don't have that angle, I don't st- I don't start writing I mean you know I, m- I might write uh, well I'll write like a, a paragraph you know you know if, if I think of a, an interesting way to describe something I'll write that down but in terms of actually writing a story I have to have that angle you know from the beginning right
0: um, even, I, even before you leave for the trip you're thinking about what your angle
2: might be a little bit but I, actually most of it is while I'm on the trip sure so sure. so uh, so an important element of being on a trip, And I think this is something you talk about a lot too, is you need to have some time to reflect. You know, and that's, that's my, that's my, my pet peeve about a lot of these trips, especially uh, media trips, where they want you to experience as much as possible Mm -hmm. and they cram everything in. And then there's never any time to like sit in your room or sit in the lounge and think about, you know, what, what you've done to take notes, to reflect upon the experience that you had that day. And without that, you know, it, it makes it much more much harder to get to what's the theme, what's the angle, you know, that I'm going to, you know, take on this trip.
1: Yeah. So when you're planning your own trips, do you purposefully leave plenty of time for spontaneity and for reflection and just...
2: When you say planning my own trips, do you mean trips that I'm leading? Trips right? that you're
1: going on or trips that you're leading? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, trips that I'm leading, you know, then I'm faced with the the expectation of clients is that their days are full. They, they feel like they're being cheated, you know, if there's too much downtime. Then, then they complain that they things are too busy. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened on that, that, um, that Southeast Asia trip, you know, last year, sure. which was really chock full of, of activity and people started peeling away. This is where I differ from my wife as well too. So, um, you know, there'll be times when I'm on a trip with her where she wants to go out, like we were in Ireland. She wanted. She she loves Irish music, and so I think she went to a every night. She'd go out to a pub to hear music, and every and I'd go with her most of the time. But every now and then, I'd say, "Listen, I'm just going to stay back in the hotel room because I have to take some notes, and I have to read, I have to write, and I have to blog, and you know." So I, I have some work that I have to do. So I I try to to build in some time if if I can if I'm designing the trip and if it's my trip, you know. You know, I try to build in time, and uh, or or for sure take that time. So I don't, I don't like every day. You know, so uh, Catherine will be looking for day tours, city tours. You know, there's this walking tour. Here's a food tour. You know, and she'll do all of that, and I'll say, wait, wait, hold off. Let's do a couple of them, but I don't want to do, I don't want to fill the whole three days there with uh, with tours. I want a day, and this is important. I think in every city that I go to. I want a day at least where we have no agenda and we're just wandering. Yes. You know, it's that I, I just recently uh read uh, there was a French expression to describe this, and it, it really it, it fits it perfectly, and I can't my pronouncing flaneur flaneur do you know do you know any French? Uh, I F- know
0: what you're I know what
2: are speaking. I think something like that. But it means that wandering in a city and observing, you know, looking at the architecture, looking at people and what they're doing. And and I, I love to do that in every city that I'm in. is If it's a walkable city, you know, and, uh, you know, even cities that aren't that walkable, I'll try and find a place that you, you can walk where you wander and you don't really have a, an agenda and you have a map so that you don't get lost and you might want to go there, might want to go there. But sometimes it's just like, let me walk down this street. Let me see what's on this street. And there's a, there's a pa- passageway or there's an alley. Let me, you know, so I think that's a, so again, that's part of that uh, allowing yourself some time for, for spontaneity, for serendipity. And I think that's that's really an important part of, of every trip for exploration. Yeah, to-
0: totally agree. And I mean, certainly, it's the way that I travel. It's the way that, you know, certainly when we're planning travel experiences for, for our guests, you know, unless they kick and scream otherwise and they right. want the value that you're talking about, it's it's very much about giving them enough really great experiences and then plenty of time to yeah. wander, explore, let the right. emergent and the organic and the spontaneous happen. Like, right. Go get lost, like on purpose, as you're saying, right? Go get lost. You know, yeah. In Prague, one of my favorite travel experiences was doing exactly what you said before I really knew what I was doing was I spent an entire day wandering around Prague and I got ice cream and I got went to yeah. the castle and I did this thing and I had a beer over here and had some goulash over there and I met 97 people and yeah. I'll never forget that day and I didn't do anything that was planned. I didn't have a tour yeah. but I'll never forget that day.
2: That's one of the best ways. It's one of, the, it's one of the, my favorite experiences in cities are those days. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Yes.
0: So what do you do while you're traveling, while you're exploring, especially when you've got free time, any, anything that you do that that allows you to engage at a deeper level than maybe you had in the past?
2: First of all, I get up very early. And, and this is uh, easy for me because um, I, I wake up early at home. I mean, you know, at home I'll be up at 5 a.m. most of the time, sometimes earlier. So when I'm traveling, uh, I I get up and I, I intentionally get up, you know, early. So I like, when you know, if I'm on a, on a ship, for example, you know, I'll get up early and I'll wander into the lounge and get a a cup of coffee and go out on the deck. And there's usually uh, maybe one or two other people, you know, out there. Sometimes I'm uh, up there before everybody else. And that's my favorite time of the day Hmm. is just getting up before everything starts before the, the, all the activity starts. And, you know, and it's, I I usually have a good hour or even two. And if it's a, you know, if it's not too cold, I'll, I'll be outside uh, and you know, and, and maybe I'll take some notes frequently it's just to have the experience. The notes is usually uh, late afternoon after we an excursion is over before dinner mm-hmm. you know there's always like uh, getting together with other people that you're traveling with for drinks. so I like to do that but I also like to have a little bit of time to myself so I try to to juggle that you know find some time uh, by my, you know to myself or you know it, it's, it's not uncommon for me to take my notebook, into the lounge, you know, get a drink. And while other people are around, I sort of enjoy that's a little bit of buzz of hearing other people and taking my notes every now and then, looking up, talking to someone and getting back to to my notes. And in the evening after dinner, uh, I'm not a big one for hanging around in the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do that for a little bit. And sometimes I sometimes I do it because I enjoy it. Sure. But uh, I, I like to, to get back to my room or my cabin or wherever it is, mm-hmm. or my tent, no, <laughs> I, I think my camping days are, are over. I, it's hard for me to imagine going camping.
0: Anymore. Robin, I've heard this like 10 times over the past six or seven years. So, yeah, when well,
2: I see it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there are things that happen to your body that make it <laughs> sciatica, for one. Sciatica, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And so to have uh, sometimes, sometimes I, I just, I just, I have a book and I just read, you know, mm-hmm. I, I may not be writing anything down uh, at all, but you know, but, but having, having time to myself in the morning and in the evening is really critical, regardless of how I use that time. Mm
0: -hmm. You you talk a lot about observing this, this concept of Flanore, right? Um, Do you, do you seek out opportunities to actively engage with people there? I mean, do you go up to somebody and invite them to coffee or engage, spark a conversation with them or anything, or do you, sort of give them distance and respect that and just sort of observe?
2: Well, it's sort of a little bit of both. But, uh, you know, if there is a reason, like we're asking for directions, people come up to me, they, uh, they recognize that I'm a tourist, and for some reason they think they recognize that I'm an American. <laughs> uh, in Belfast, actually, that happened a lot. Uh, people, the people in Belfast are very friendly. If I go into a restaurant or into a bar after someone, you know, nearby, uh, I very frequently end up in conversation with them. But I, I won't. Uh, I won't approach people just to talk because, uh, you know, I feel I, I think it's a little bit intrusive.
0: You talked about sort of the the themes of your writing or of a particular experience sort of emerging. What's that process like for you? How do you sort of begin to identify
2: that theme? It's just it's, it's thinking. Yeah, uh, it's uh, analyzing, thinking. You know, let me think. Uh, an example. So, uh, Indonesia, this, le- this last trip to Indonesia, it was, uh, it was on a boat. Uh, we went from Raja Ampad, which is great snorkeling, through some other provinces towards uh, Papua New Guinea. And, uh, you know, so I was at that stage of, um, in fact, I'm looking at a picture on my computer right now uh, swimming with the whale sharks, getting up early to go bird watching, looking for birds of paradise. So, I had, uh, you know, had different experiences. But I didn't have a theme other than it's a tropical paradise. It's beautiful here, you know, and um, but we were also, uh, you know, they tell stories about the people there. Oh, we visited. We also it was also a site during the Second World War. There was uh, uh, Japanese soldiers were there. The Americans were based on a few of the islands. There was one site that we went to on one of the islands where the Japanese hid in a cave during the day and at night they'd come out and they'd stage raids. They treated the people, the local people very badly. So the local people told the Americans where the Japan, where they, where they were. Mm. And so the Americans bombed that cave and, you know, we're in the cave and you could see it. Wow. 3000 3, Japanese soldiers were killed by these bombs. And then after they bombed, they then, they then uh, went to the mouth of the cave and they threw, you know, napalm down it. I mean, it's, you know, it's terrible and uh, that that got me thinking about, wow, this was, this was hell for them. Sure. And then I think about movies that I saw or stories that I heard about the American soldiers, you know, in the South Pacific and it was hell, you know, it was hot. They'd get, you know, fungus in their feet, you know, um, snake. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And I thought, wow, for those people, this is not a tropical paradise. This was hell. And so that was the that was the chain of thought, you know. I, I didn't I didn't have that in mind when I started, but by the fourth or fifth day, and then then we started meeting the uh, uh, local uh, uh, indigenous people on one of the islands that's uh, on the island that's attached to uh, uh, Papua New Guinea. So the, the island of, of Papua is divided in two between the nation of Papua New Guinea and the province of Papua, which is part of Indonesia. And the people in that province are, uh, you know, want to succeed, secede from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. You know, they're treated badly. They're ethnically, they're different. The religion's different. You know, everything about them is different and they feel, you know, they feel oppressed. And so we would hear the stories and there had been uh, a couple of, of nasty riots and demonstrations that, you know, that happened, you know, nearby. So that got me to thinking. You know, I mean, here, you know, here is this tropical paradise, but it's not a paradise for people who have to die here or have to fight here, mm-hmm. who are trying to uh, uh, gain their independence. So, you know, I mean, it's it's thinking. You know, this it, is going back to what we started with: is that being uh, reflective mm-hmm. or obsessive? You know, it's it's living in your head too much, sure. maybe. Sure. Uh, um, you know, but maybe, but that's, but living in your head is the way that you sometimes come up with, with insights and ideas. So it's getting, trying to get a balance between that. But I think that's being able to get inside your head and just think about this stuff until, until something, something emerges and it does. It always does.
0: Yeah. Don, I want to, I want to, we're going to wrap up here in a few, a, a couple questions for you before I give it to Robin for some fun, rapid fire questions for you. But do you believe that travel can be transformational?
2: Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. It was definitely transformational for me. I mean, I think everything in many respects, I don't say everything, but a lot of who I am today uh, is because of uh, my travel experiences. It's not just because I became a travel writer, but I think that even before that it had a very profound impact on me. It just expanded my horizons about the world. It expanded, um, you know, how I thought of myself. I think it's, uh, I think if, if, if travel is good, it's transformative. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, if the travel is right, if you're traveling the right way, uh, it's transformative. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, transformative maybe with a small T rather than a capital T. So sometimes sure. it's not profound, you know, it, it changes you in some way or another.
0: Sure. And hopefully it, it it has a positive impact on the destinations that we that we travel to as well.
2: Right. That's another story.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think it does. If, if to, Again, to your point, if done well.
2: Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, this may be a bit of a sidebar. I'm very disturbed by this uh, trend among uh, millennials or younger or whoever that are uh, uh, travel shaming. You know, mm-hmm. and I ran into that in Sweden. You know, people who, you know, this uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, has an impact on the kids in Sweden. They won't travel anywhere. Or, you know, they won't fly anywhere anyway. And a lot of them are just going to travel anymore. And I think that's a big mistake. Sure. I understand we're having, travel can have a a bad impact. we got to find out ways to ameliorate that impact. But I think, but not traveling is not the answer. Mm. You know, I I think a lot of uh, what's happened in this country, you know, the stuff that happened on January 6th and a lot of that whole Trump thing is uh, uh, among people who don't travel. Yeah we can get into that. Yeah. I can talk, I can talk on that. No, for yeah. Yeah. But more, so. <laughs> well, it's, it's
0: fear of the unknown, right? It's, 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 unknown. it's yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's parochialism.
0: Do you, last question for me before I give it to Robin, do you believe that people can be transformed by travel or is it more like we talked about at the beginning that it's sort of an unveiling and an increased awareness of who you really are? Or is it both?
2: I'm not sure I make the dist- distinction. Um, yeah. I'm does, not sure.
0: does, does someone's values change through travel?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it, maybe it's the most powerful force for change in, um, in a positive way that that we have that, um, you know, and, but listen, I think the problem that we're facing in, in, throughout the world, it's not just in the, in the U.S. is tribalism. is increased, you know, a plural, a pluralism, populism, whatever you call it, but I think it's tribalism, where people just identify with their tribe. I think that's a, a major, major problem, and I think the only way to get beyond that is to leave your tribe, mm-hmm. even if it's only for a week or two on a trip, but, you know, to get a perspective on other people. They develop some lateral skills for sure. uh, for appreciating, you know, the differences, so I think you know, travel is the best way to uh, to do that.
1: Awesome, Don. Now I'm gonna hit you with a few rapid fire questions. You remember these from when sure. we did our webinar together,
2: yeah?
1: Um, so we'll just try and keep it brief. Favorite beer? Uh,
2: IPAs. I'm not sure I have one in particular, but um, I'm always looking for new IPAs. But definitely IPAs. And the uh, the hoppier the better.
1: Favorite drug?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> these days it's alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't smoke marijuana anymore. I don't, I don't do any, any of that stuff anymore. So that's that's uh, alcohol or 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 music. You know, music to me is like a drug. Mm. So. Jazz mm-hmm. in particular, yeah. Jazz mm-hmm. and, and progressive, far out, experimental jazz. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Favorite Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles.
2: Newport Seafood. They have the best lobster I have ever had in my life. It's a, uh, it's a. Um, a Vietnamese, Cambodian, Thai take on traditional Cantonese seafood. Amazing. So the owners, yeah, the owners are Cambodian. Uh, so they've uh, they've incorporated some Southeast Asian touches into you know they take the concept of the Cantonese seafood and they've introduced these uh, these Southeast Asian touches. It's it's the best lobster I've ever had in my life.
1: Oh my gosh, you're making me hungry. Okay, one thing you miss most about pre-pandemic life.
2: Oh, hanging out with friends, you know, face to face, going to restaurants, eating out, uh, mm-hmm. and travel, and hearing and hearing music. So that's not one. thing. <laughs> that's as well. more
1: than one. Thing. <laughs> 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 one silver lining of the pandemic.
2: Uh, I got my uh, I fixed, fixed up my garage.
1: Nice. Yeah. Now you have a home. I mean,
2: that, that was a major that was a major project. that lasted for about two months. I mean, you can see behind me, I don't know, Michael, I remember the garage it was pretty messy. Sure. You know, new paint, new carpet, a new linoleum in the bathroom in there. The, the, uh, the garage itself looks great, you know? So. I, I, um, I literally only
0: remember it cause that's where the beer fridge was. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, the that's right. The, the overflow. The overflow, uh, overflow
2: beer overflow. fridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a major project. I've been thinking about this for for years. And this gave me the opportunity to, uh, to do that.
1: One thing that you always bring with you when you travel.
2: Uh, two things. I'm to yeah, cheating's fine. Uh,
1: Breaking the rules, Dan.
2: A, head, a headlamp and a, uh, and, uh, earplugs. Headlamp is critical. You know, like, uh, you get up in the middle of the night, you don't want to turn the lights on, you know, you wake, 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 wake mm-hmm. up your, your partner, and you wake yourself up. Um, and, uh, you know, so you need, and, and you're in a strange space. So you need to have a, uh, You need to have a a headlamp. And also, uh, I get jet lag, so I spend a lot of hours sitting in bed reading with my headlamp because I can't sleep. And earplugs because places are noisy and Mm -hmm. I don't them.
1: Yeah.
0: Robin, Um, I I spent about a month at Don's place, uh, house sitting (laughs) in the summer of 2017. And there's a few days overlap where Don came home and I hadn't left yet. And Catherine, I think, was still traveling, so she wasn't back yet. I think it was the first night after Don got back. I was sleeping on the on the sofa. It was the most comfortable spot for me. And I think it was probably 3.30 in the morning. I, I look up and I see a headlamp <laughs> in the kitchen. And it, and it scared the hell out of me. I, I didn't no know what was going on.
1: An, <laughs> I an intruder.
0: With start. I thought it was an intruder, you know, whatever. grabbed the pillow to throw at him. And then it was just Don grabbing a, a bite to eat or something. Like
1: <laughs> okay, last question for you, Don. If you could go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go?
2: Actually, Iceland. I've been thinking about that. mean, it's, it's, it's one of mm. I, it's one of the few places I haven't been to that is that has that sort of uh, that semi lunar, mm-hmm. you know, polar, you know, arctic environment. And I, and I would like to go. I've uh, I passed up an opportunity to go there many many years ago because I was working on my book. For sure, people. and uh, of course now it's become very popular. Uh, but there's still places that uh, you know that, that do the circuit. You know, drive drive around the. Uh, and there's a new there's a road that I think most of it's a gravel road, but it's I think they call it the uh, the Arctic Highway or the Polar Highway. And uh, so yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to do that.
0: Don, I've got I've got one last question for you here. I have a couple questions for you too. So oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Okay, if if you could go back. And talk to that 26, 27 year old self, you know, the day before you were about to head off to the UK in your first travel experience, what, what advice would you give yourself?
2: Don't worry. Mm. It's going to work out. Yeah. I mean, is that, a, yeah, it's advice. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time being anxious about stuff, you know, I and mean, I still do. I mean, that's sort of part of my psychological makeup being assured at age 27 or 28 mm. that it's going to work out. That would have been, that would have been great.
0: So Don, before we let you run here, um, I want to co- plug a couple things. One being uh, our Northern Thailand and Laos trip that we have tentatively scheduled for the fall of 2021. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and why that experience is so special for you?
2: Well, I th- that region uh, is one of my favorite regions in the world. I, I love Laos and, and it's really, it's sort of off the, uh, the beaten tourist track. So, uh, it, so it has that. So it's, there's few tourists there. Northern Thailand, um, which is also part of that region, it's really the Mekong River region, and there's so much history in that region, and and culturally, it's really one of the most interesting and unique places I think in the world because there are, it's an area that where there are a number of different uh, ethnic tribes that have actually have lived and developed pretty much independent of each other, even though they. They're in pretty much the same region. So they have very unique kinds of cultural characteristics uh, that you only will find, you know, there. Uh, You got the history of colonialism uh, along the Mekong River. Laos itself is beautiful. It's mountainous up in that area. It's lush and mountainous. There's very little development along the river. Luang Prabang is, I think, one of my, probably maybe my favorite city in the world. Uh, Northern Thailand is... A place, you know, Thailand's a very popular tourist destination, but most people go south. You know, they go to the beaches. Mm. And I, I've been to Thailand at least twenty times. I've never gone to the beaches. I've never, go, I've never gone south. I always go north because that's where the history is, mm. and that's where all the 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 cultural, the interesting cultural issues are. Well, not all of them, but but I think a lot of them. You know, the the impact of the Khmer culture on, on northeastern Thailand, the impact of China you know, on uh, northern Thailand. So it's a it's a beautiful region. It's a culturally interesting and unique region. It's also a region that is not overrun with tourists. So you really get to have a, a very special kind of experience without having to jostle in elbows with uh, large Tory groups from Germany, mm-hmm. France, or China.
0: So the dates for that are October 17th to 30th, 2021. As of now, again, we're going to stay fluid, stay flexible with regard to the COVID situation and, and, and adjust as necessary. But for now, the dates are the 17th to the
2: 30th of October, 2021. Don, where else can people connect with you? Uh, through my website, you can, uh, you can send me an email or you can send an email directly uh, through uh, dmankin, D-M-A-N-K-I-N, the number four at gmail.com. And your, so, yeah. website, your website, once again, is? AdventureTransformations.com. Yeah, plural.com dot com. .com. And uh, communications to the website, just actually go to my email.
0: Got it, got it, got it, got it. And then uh, one last plug for writing the hula hula. That can be found on Amazon, is that correct? And any other local bookstore?
2: Yeah, Amazon.
0: Got it right uh, in the middle of the article. I don't
2: know if it's in the bookstores anymore because it was. It came out in two thousand two thousand eight. So look, at, look in the used book section. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but but I buy I, no, I don't get, I don't. I don't make any money off the uh, used book. So
0: yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Don, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for giving us uh, and being so generous with your time and sharing your wisdom, and I think inspiring a sense of wanderlust in and all of us and thanks to all of you for listening be sure to follow us on social media at go Explorer x questions or emails can be sent to hello at explorer-x.com if you want to learn more about don's uh, the trip that don's leading to southeast asia for northern thailand and laos um, you can find more information on our website under the small group journey section and until next time stay safe stay healthy and stay adventurous